This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara, 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. Today I'll be reading By a Hair and All Cats Are Gray by Andre Norton. Alice Mary Norton wrote predominantly under Andre Norton, as well as Andrew North and Alan Weston. She was born in 1912. She legally changed her name to Andre Norton in 1934, the same year she published her first book, The Prince Commands, being Sundry Adventures of Michael Carl, sometime crown prince and pretender to the throne of Morvania. Norton's first published science fiction was a short novella, The People of the Crater, in 1947, which appeared under the name Andrew North. Norton was the first woman to be Gandalf Grandmaster of Fantasy, first to be SFWA Grandmaster, Science Fiction Writers of America, and first inducted by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. I will be reading By a Hair by Andre Norton, which was first published in Phantom, July 1958. You say, friend, that witchcraft at its strongest is but a crude knowledge of psychology, a use of a man's own fear of the unknown to destroy him. Perhaps it may be so in modern lands. But me, I have seen what I have seen. More than fear destroyed Dagmar Kark and Colonel Andrei Veroff. There were four of them, strong and passionate. Ivor and Dagmar Kark, Andrei Veroff, and the Countess Anna. What they desired, they gained by the aid of something not to be seen, nor felt, nor sensed tangibly something not in the experience of modern man. Ivor was an idealist who held to a cause and the woman he thought Dagmar to be. Dagmar, she wanted power, power over the kind of man who could give her all her heart desired. And so she wanted Colonel Andrei Veroff. And Veroff, his wish was a common one though odd for one of his creed. When a man has been nourished on the belief that the state is all the individual nothing, it is queer to want a son to the point of obsession, and though Veroff had taken many women, none had produced a child he could be sure was his. The Countess Anna, she wanted justice and love. The four people had faith in themselves, strong faith. Besides, they had it in other things, Ivor in his cause and his wife, Veroff in a creed, and Dagmar and Anna in something very old and enduring. It could not have happened in this new land of yours, to that I agree, but in my birth country it is different." All this came to be in a narrow knife slash 
of a valley running from the mountains to the great salt sweep of the Baltic. It is true that the shadow of the true cross has lain over that valley since the Teutonic Knights planted it on the castle they built in the crags almost a thousand years ago. But before the white Christ came, other grimmer gods were worshipped in that land. In the fir forest, where the valley walls are steep, there is still a stone altar set in a grove that was tended openly at first and later in secret, for long after the priests of Rome chanted masses in the church. In that country, the valley is reckoned rich. Life there was good until the Nazis came. Then the Count was shot in his own courtyard, since he was not the type of man to suffer the arrogance of others calmly. And with him, Houdin, the head gamekeeper, and the heads of three valley households. Afterwards, they took away the young Countess Anna. But Ivor Kark fled to the hills, and our young men joined him. During two years, perhaps a little more, they carried on guerrilla warfare with the invader, just as it had happened in those days in all the countries stamped by the Iron Heel. But to my country, there came no liberation. Where the Nazi had strutted in his pride, the bear of the north shambled and stamped into red dust those who defied him. Some fled and some stayed to fight, believing in their innocence that the nations among the free would rise in their behalf. Ivor Kark and his men, not yet realizing fully the doom come upon us, ventured out of the mountains. For a time, it appeared that the valley, being so small a community, might indeed be overlooked. In those few days of freedom, Ivor found Dagmar Love. Who can describe such a woman as Dagmar with words? She was not beautiful, no. Seldom is it that great beauty brings men to their knees. Look at the portraits of your historical charmers, or read what has been written of Cleopatra, of Theodora, and the rest. They have something other than beauty, these fateful ones. A flame within them which kindles an answer in all men who look upon them. But their own hearts remain cold. Dagmar walked with a grace which tore at you, and when she looked at one sideways, but who can describe such a woman? I can say she had silver, fair hair, which reached to her knees, and a face with a frost-white skin. But I cannot so make you see the Dagmar love that was. Because of his leadership in the underground, Ivor was a hero to us. In addition, he was good to look upon, a tall whip of a man, brown, thin, narrow waist and loins, and broad of shoulder. He had been a huntsman of the Count's and walked with a forester's smooth glide. Above his widely set eyes, his hair grew in a sharp peak, giving his face a disturbingly wolfish cast. 
but in his eyes and mouth there was the dedication of a priest. Being what she was, Dagmar looked upon those eyes and that mouth and desired to trouble the mold, to see there a difference she had wrought. In some ways, Ivor was an innocent, but Dagmar was one who had known much from her cradle. Also, Ivor was now the great man among us. With the Count gone, the men of the valley looked to him for leadership. Dagmar went to him willingly, and we sang her bride song. It was a good time, such as we had not known for years. Others came back to the valley during those days, out of the black horror of a Nazi extermination camp, crawled a pale, twisted creature, warped in body, perhaps also in mind. She who had once been the Countess, Anna, came quietly, almost secretly, among us again. One day she had not been there, and the next she was settled in the half-ruinous gate house of the castle with old Mauld, who had been with her family long before her own birth. The Countess Anna had been a woman of education before they had taken her away, and she had not forgotten all she had learned. There was no doctor in the valley. Twenty families could not have supported one, but the Countess was versed in the growing of herbs and their healing uses, and Mald was a midwife. So together they became the wise women of our people. After a while, we forgot the Countess Anna's deformed body and ravaged face and accepted her as we accepted the crooked firs growing close to the timberline. Not one of us remembered that she was yet in years a young woman with a young woman's dreams and desires encased in a hag's body. It was late October when our fate came upon us up river in a power boat. The new masters would set in our hills a station from which their machines could spy upon the outer world they feared and hated, and to make safe the building of that station they had sent ahead a conqueror's party. They surprised us, and something had drained out of the valley. So many of our youth were long since bleached bones that, save for a handful, perhaps only the number of fingers on my two hands, there was no defiance. There was only a dumb beast's endurance. Within three days, Colonel Andrei Veroff ruled from the castle as if he had been Count, Lord of a tired, cowed people. Three men they hauled from their homes and shot on first sight, but Ivor was not one. He had been warned and, with the corps of his men, had taken again to the mountains, but he left Dagmar behind by her own will. Mauld and the Countess were warned too. When Veroff marched his pocket army into the castle, the gatehouse was deserted and those who thereafter sought the wise woman's aid took another path, 
up into the black green of the fir forest and close to a long stone partly buried in the ground with a circle of very old oaks which had not grown so by chance. There was a game station hut. Those in need could find what they wanted, perhaps more. Father Hansel had been one of the three Veroff shot out of hand, and there was no longer an open church in the valley. What went on in the oak glade was another matter. First, our women drifted there, half ashamed, half defiant, and later they were followed by their men. I do not think the Countess Anna was their priestess, but she knew and condoned, for she had learned many things. The wise woman begged to offer more than just comfort of body. It was a queer, wild time when men, in their despair, turned from old belief to older ones, from a god of love and peace to a god of wrath and vengeance. Owed knowledge passed by word of mouth from mother to daughter was recalled by such as mauled and keenly evaluated by the sharper and better trained brain of the Countess Anna. I will not say that they called upon Odin and Freya or those behind those Nordic spirits or lighted the Beltane fire, but there was a stirring as if something long sleeping turned and stretched in its supposed grave. Dagmar, for all her shrewd egotism, and egotism such as hers is dangerous, for it leads a man or woman to believe that what they wish is right, was a daughter of the valley. She was moved by the old beliefs, and because she had her price, she was convinced that all others had theirs. So at night, she went alone to the hut. There she watched until the Countess Anna left. It was she who carried news, and a few desperately gained supplies to those in hiding, especially Ivor. Seeing the hunched figure creep off, Dagmar laughed spitefully, making a secret promise to herself that even a man she might choose to throw away would go to no other woman. But since, at present, she needed aid and not ill will, she put that aside. When the Countess was out of sight, Dagmar went into mauled and stood in the half-light of the fire, proud and tall, exulting over the other woman in all the sensual strength and grace of her body, as she had over the Countess Anna in her mind. I would have what I desire most, Andre Varoff, she said boldly, speaking with the arrogance of a woman who rules men by their lusts. Let him but look on you. You need no help here, returned Mauled. I cannot come to him easily. He is not one to be met by chance. Give me that which will bring him to me by his own choice. You are a wedded wife. Dagmar laughed shrilly. What good does a man 
who must hide ever in a mountain cave do me, old one. I have slept too long in a cold bed. Let me draw Var off, and you and the valley will have kin within the enemy's gate. Mauld studied her for a long moment, and Dagmar grew uneasy, for those eyes in age-carved pits seemed to read far too deeply. But without making any answer in words, Mauld began certain preparations. There was a strange chanting, low and soft, but long, that night. The words were almost as old as the hills around them, and the air of the hut was thick with the scent of burning herbs. When it was done, Dagmar stood again by the fire, and in her hand she turned and twisted a shining silken belt. She looped it about her arm, beneath her cloak, and tugged at the heavy coronet of her braids. The long locks mauled, had shorn, were not missed. Her teeth showed in white points against her lips as she brought out her pocket some of those creased slips of paper our conquerors used for money. Mauled shook her head. Not for coin I did this, she said harshly, but if you come to rule here as you desire, remember, you are kin. Dagmar laughed again, more than ever sure of herself. Be sure that I will, old one. Within two days, the silken belt was in Veroff's hands, and within five, Dagmar was installed in the castle. But in the colonel, she had met her match, for Veroff found her no great novelty. She could not bend him to her will, as she had Ivor, who was more sensitive and less guarded. But being shrewd, Dagmar accepted the situation with surface grace and made no demands. As for the valley women, they spat after her, and there was hate in their hearts. Who told Ivor, I do not know, though it was not the Countess Anna. She could not wound where she would die to defend. But somehow he managed to get a message to Dagmar, entreating her to come to him, for he believed she had gone to Veroff to protect him. What that message aroused in Dagmar was contempt and fear, contempt for the man who would call her to share his harsh exile and fear that he might break the slender bond she had with Veroff. She was determined that Ivor must go. It was very simple, that betrayal, for Ivor believed in her. He went to his death as easily as a bullock led to the butcher, in spite of warnings from the Frontis Anna and his men. He slipped down by night to where Dagmar promised to wait and walked into the hands of the colonel's guard. They say he was a long time dying, for Andrei Veroff had a taste for such treatment for prisoners when he could safely indulge it. Dagmar watched him die. That, too, was part of the colonel's pr- pleasure. After 
there was a strange shadow in her eyes, although she walked with pride. It was two months later that she made her second visit to Mald, but this time there were two to receive her. Yet in neither look, word, nor deed did either show emotion at that meeting. It was as if they waited. They remained silent, forcing her to declare her purpose. I would bear a son, she began, as one giving an order. Only confronted by those unchanging faces, she had faltered and lost some of her assurance. She might even have turned and gone, had the Countess Anna not spoken in a cool and even voice. It is well known that Veroff desires a son, Dagmar responded to that faint encouragement. True, let me be the one to bear the child, and my influence over him will be complete. Then I can repay, it is true, your frozen faces. She was aroused by the masks they wore. You believe that I betrayed Ivor, not knowing the whole of the story. I have very little power over Veroff now, but let me give him a son. Then there will be no limit on what I can demand of him. None at all. You shall bear a son. Certainly you shall bear a son, replied the countess. In the security of that promise, Dagmar rejoiced, not attending to the finer shades of meaning in the voice which uttered it. But what you ask of us takes preparation. You must wait and return when the moon once more waxes. Then we shall do what is to be done. Reassured, Dagmar left, and the door of the hut swung shut behind her. The Countess Anna came to stand before the fire, her crooked shape making a blot upon the wall with its shadow. She shall have a son, Mauled. Even as I promised, only whether thereafter she will discover it profitable. From within the folds of her coarse peasant blouse, she brought out a packet wrapped in a scrap of fine but brown-stained linen. Unfolding the cloth, she revealed what it guarded, a lock of black hair, stiff and matted, with something more than mud. Mauled seeing that and guessing the purpose for which it would be used, laughed. The countess did not so much as smile. There shall be a son, Mauled, she repeated, but her promise was no threat. There was a more subtle note, and in the firelight her eyes gleamed with an eagerness to belay the ruin of her face. Within two days came the night she had appointed, and Dagmar with it. Again, there was chanting and things done in secret. When Dagmar left at dawn, she smiled a thin smile. Let her but bear a child, and they would see. And they would see how she would deal with those who now dared to look crosswise after her and spit upon her footprints. Let such fools take heed. Shortly thereafter, it became 
known that Dagmar was with child. Verov could not conceal his joy. During the months which followed, he made plans to send her out of the valley, that his son might be born with the best medical care, and he loaded her with gifts. But the inner caution of an often disappointed man made him keep her prisoner. Dagmar did not leave the valley. She could not make the rough trip by river and sea. The road over the mountain was but a narrow track, and just before Verov prepared to leave with her, there was such a storm as is seldom seen at that time of year. A landslide blotted out the road. The colonel cursed and drove his own soldiers and the valley men to dig a way through. But even he realized it could not be cleared in time. So he was forced to summon Mauld. His threats to her were cold and deadly, for he had no illusions concerning the depth of the valley's hatred. But the old woman bore his raving meekly, and he came to believe her broken enough in spirit to be harmless. Thus, though he still suspected her, he brought her to Dagmar and bade her to use her skill. For a night and a day Dagmar lay in labor, and what she suffered must have been very great, but greater still was her determination to be the one to place a living son in the arms of Andrei Verov. In the evening the child was born, its thin cry echoing from the walls of the ancient room like the wail of a tormented soul. Dagmar clawed herself up. Is it a boy? she demanded hoarsely. Mauld nodded her white head. A boy. Give him to me and call. But there was no need to complete that order, for Andrei Verov was already within the chamber, and Dagmar greeted him proudly, the baby in the curve of her arm. As he strode to the bedside, she thrust away the swaddling blanket and displayed the tiny body fully. But her eyes were for Verov rather than for the child she had schemed to make a weapon in her hand. "'Your son,' she began. Then something in Verov's eyes, as he stared down upon the child, chilled her, as if naked steel, ice cold, had been plunged into her sweating body. For the first time, she looked upon the baby. This was her key, a son for Verov. Her scream, thin and high, tore through the storm wind moaning outside the narrow window. Andrei loomed over her as she cowered away from what she read in his eyes, in the twist of his thick lips. It was Mauld who snatched the baby and sped from that room at a greater speed than her years might warrant to be joined by another within a secret way of the castle. The twisted, limp figure that took the child eagerly into long, empty arms to hold it tenderly as a long-desired gift. But neither of the two mauled left were aware of her flight. What was done there cannot be told, 
but before the coming of dawn, Veroff shot himself. Where's the magic in all this, besides the muttering of an old woman? Just to this. When Dagmar demanded a son from the Countess Anna, she had obtained her desire, but the child she bore had fine black hair grown in a sharp peak above a wolf cub's face, a face which Andrei Veroff and Dagmar Kark had excellent reason to know well. Who fathered Dagmar's child, a man nigh twelve months dead? And who was its true mother? Think carefully, my friend. Not a pretty story, eh? But you see, old gods do not tend to be mild when called on to render justice. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. I will be reading All Cats Are Gray by Andre Norton, which was first published in Fantastic Universe, August-September 1953. Stina of the Spaceways. That sounds just like a corny title for one of the stellar Veto spreads. I ought to know. I've tried my hand at writing enough of them. Only the Stina was no glorious babe. She was as colorless as a lunar planet. Even the hair netted down to her skull had a sort of grayish cast, and I never saw her but once draped in anything but a shapeless and baggy gray space all. Stina was strictly background stuff, and that is where she mostly spent her free hours, in the smelly, smoky background corners of any stellar port dive frequented by free spacers. If you really look for her, you could spot her just sitting there listening to the talk, listening and remembering. She didn't open her own mouth often, but when she did, spacers had learned to listen. And the lucky few who heard her rare spoken words, these will never forget Stina. She drifted from port to port, being an expert operator on the big calculators. She found jobs wherever she cared to stay for a time, and she came to be something like the masterminded machines she tended. Smooth, gray, without much personality of their own. But it was Stina who told Bub Nelson about the Joven Moonrites, and her warning saved Bub's life six months later. It was Stina who identified the piece of stone Keen Clark was passing around the table one night, rightly calling it unworked, slitite. That started a rush which made ten fortunes overnight for men who were down to their last jets. And last of all, she cracked the case of the Empress of Mars. All the boys who had profited by her queer store of knowledge and her photographic memory tried at one time or another to balance the scales, but she wouldn't take so much as a cup of canal water at their 
expense, let alone the credits they tried to push on her. Bub Nelson was the only one who got around her refusal. It was he who brought her bat. About a year after the Joven affair, he walked into the freefall one night and dumped bat down on her table. Bat looked at Stina and growled. She looked calmly back at him and nodded once. From then on, they traveled together, the thin gray woman and the big gray tomcat. Bat learned to know the inside of more stellar bars than even most spacers visited in their lifetimes. He developed a liking for vernal juice, drank it neat and quick, right out of the glass. He was always at home on any table where Stina elected to drop him. This is really the story of Stina, Bat, Cliff Morin, and the Empress of Mars, a story which is already a legend of the spaceways, and it's a damn good story, too. I ought to know, having framed the first version of it myself. For I was there, right in the Rigel Royal, when it all began on the night that Cliff Moran blew in, looking lower than an Ant-Man's belly and twice as nasty. He'd had a spell of luck foul enough to twist a man into a slug snake, and we all knew that there was an attachment out for his ship. Cliff had fought his way up from the back courts of Venaport, lose his ship, and he'd slip back there to rot. He was at the snarling stage that night when he picked out a table for himself and set out to drink away his troubles. However, just as the first bottle arrived, so did a visitor. Stina came out of her corner, back curled around her shoulders, stole-wise, his favorite mode of travel. She crossed over and dropped down, without invitation, at Cliff's side. That shook him out of his sulks, because Stina never chose company when she could be alone. If one of the manstones on Gaymedi had come stumping in, it wouldn't have made more of us look out of the corner of our eyes. She stretched out one long-fingered hand, set aside the bottle he had ordered, and said only one thing. It's about time for the Empress of Mars to appear. Cliff scowled and bit his lip. He was tough, tough as a jet lining. You have to be granite inside and out to struggle up from Venaport to a ship command. But we could guess what was running through his mind at that moment. The Empress of Mars was just about the biggest prize a spacer could aim for. But in the 50 years she had been following her queer, derelict orbit through space, many men had tried to bring her in, and none had succeeded. A pleasure ship carrying untold wealth, she had been mysteriously abandoned in space by passengers and crew, none of whom had ever been seen or heard of again. At intervals thereafter, she had been sighted, even boarded. 
Those who ventured into her either vanished or returned swiftly without any believable explanation of what they had seen, wanting only to get away from her as quickly as possible. But the man who could bring her in, or even strip her clean in space, that man would win the jackpot. All right, Cliff slammed his fist on the table. I'll try even that. Stina looked at him, much as she must have looked at Bat that day Bub Nelson brought him to her, and nodded. That was all I saw. The rest of the story came to me in pieces months later, and in another port half the system away. Cliff took off that night. He was afraid to risk waiting, with a writ out that could pull the ship from under him. And it wasn't until he was in space that he discovered his passengers, Stina and Bat. We'll never know what happened then. I'm betting Stina made no explanation at all. She wouldn't. It was the first time she had decided to cash in on her own tip, and she was there. That was all. Maybe that point weighed with Cliff. Maybe he just didn't care. Anyway, the three were together when they sighted the Empress riding, her deadlights gleaming, a ghost ship in night space. She must have been an eerie sight because her other lights were on too. In addition to the red warnings at her nose, she seemed alive, a flying Dutchman of space. Cliff worked his ship skillfully along and had no trouble in snapping magnetic lines to her lock. Some minutes later, the three of them passed into her. There was still air in her cabins and corridors, air that bore a faint, corrupt taint, which set Bat to sniffing greedily and could be picked up even by the less sensitive human nostrils. Cliff headed straight for the control cabin, but Stina and Bat went prowling. Closed doors were a challenge to both of them, and Stina opened each as she passed, taking a quick look at what lay within. The fifth door opened on a room which no woman could leave without further investigation. I don't know what had been housed there when the Empress left port on her last lengthy cruise. Anyone really curious can check back on the old photo reg cards. But there was a lavish display of silk trailing out of two travel kits on the floor, a dressing table crowded with crystal and jeweled containers along with other lures for the female which drew Stina in. She was standing in front of the dressing table when she glanced in the mirror, glanced into it, and froze. Over her right shoulder, she could see the spider silk cover on the bed. Right in the middle of that sheer gossamer expanse was a sparkling heap of gems, the dumped contents of some jewel case, Bat had jumped to the foot of the bed and flattened out as cats will, watching those gems, watching them, and something else. Stina put out her hand blindly and caught 
up the nearest bottle. As she unstoppered it, she watched the mirrored bed. A gemmed bracelet rose from the pile, rose in the air, and tinkled its siren song. It was as if an idle hand played. Bat spat almost noiselessly. But he did not retreat. Bat had not yet decided his course. She put down the bottle. Then she did something which perhaps few of the men she had listened to through the years could have done. She moved without hurry or sign of disturbance on a tour about the room. And although she approached the bed, she did not touch the jewels. She could not force herself to do that. It took her five minutes to play out her innocence and unconcern. Then it was Bat who decided the issue. He leapt from the bed and escorted something to the door, remaining a careful distance behind. Then he mewed loudly twice. Stina followed him and opened the door wider. Bat went straight on down the corridor, as intent as a hound on the warmest of scents. Stina strolled behind him, holding her pace to the unhurried gait of an explorer. What sped before them was invisible to her, but Bat was never baffled by it. They must have gone into the control cabin, almost on the heels of the unseen, if the unseen had heels, which there was good reason to doubt. For Bat crouched just within the doorway and refused to move on. Stina looked down the length of the instrument panels and officer station seats to where Cliff Moran worked. Her boots made no sound on the heavy carpet, and he did not glance up but sat humming through set teeth as he tested the tardy and reluctant responses to buttons which had not been pushed in years. To human eyes, they were alone in the cabin, but Bat still followed a moving something which he had at last made up his mind to distrust and dislike. For now he took a step or two forward and spat, his loathing made plain by every raised hair along his spine. And in that same moment, Stina saw a flicker, a flicker of vague outline against Cliff's hunched shoulders, as if the invisible one had crossed the space between them. But why had it been revealed against Cliff and not against the back of one of the seats or against the panels? The walls of the corridor or the cover of the bed where it had reclined and played with its loot. What could Bat see? The storehouse memory that had served Stina so well through the years clicked open a half-forgotten door. With one swift motion, she tore loose her space all and flung the baggy garment across the back of the nearest seat. Bat was snarling now, emitting a throaty rising cry that was his hunting song. But he was edging back, back towards Stina's feet, shrinking from something he could not fight, but which he faced defiantly. If he could draw it after him, past that dangling space all, he had to. It was their only chance. 
What the? Cliff had come out of his seat and was staring at them. What he saw must have been weird enough. Stina, bare-armed and bare-shouldered, her usually stiffly netted hair falling wildly down her back. Stina, watching empty space with narrowed eyes and a set mouth, calculating a single wild chance. Bat crouched on his belly, was retreating from thin air step by step and wailing like a demon. "'Toss me your blaster!' Stina gave the order calmly, as if they were still at the table in the Rigel Royal. And as quietly Cliff obeyed, she caught the small weapon out of the air with a steady hand, caught and leveled it. Stay where you are, she warned. Back, Bat, bring it back. With a last throat-splitting screech of rage and hate, Bat twisted to safety between her boots. She pressed with thumb and forefinger, firing at the space all. The material turned to powdery flakes of ash, except for certain bits which still flapped from the scorched seat, as if something had protected them from the force of the blast. Bat sprang straight up in the air with a screech that tore their ears. What? began Cliff again. Stina made a warning motion with her left hand. Wait! She was still tense, still watching Bat. The cat dashed madly around the cabin twice, running crazily with white-ringed eyes and flecks of foam on his muzzle. Then he stopped abruptly in the doorway, stopped and looked back over his shoulder for a long, silent moment. He sniffed delicately. Stina and Cliff could smell it too now, a thick, oily stench which was not the usual odor left by an exploding blaster shell. Bat came back, treading daintily across the carpet, Almost on the tips of his paws, he raised his head as he passed Stina, and then he went confidently beyond to sniff, to sniff and spit twice at the unburned strips of the space all. Having thus paid his respects to the late enemy, he sat down calmly and set to wash his fur with deliberation. Stina sighed once again and dropped into the navigator's seat. Maybe now you'll tell me what in the hell happened, Cliff exploded as he took the blaster out of her hand. Gray, she said dazedly. It must have been gray, or I couldn't have seen it like that. I'm colorblind, you see. I can see only shades of gray. My whole world is gray, like bats. His world is gray, too. All gray. But he's been compensated. For he can see above and below our range of color vibrations. And apparently, so can I. Her voice quavered, and she raised her chin with a new air Cliff had never seen before. A sort of proud acceptance. She pushed back her wandering hair, but she made no move to imprison it under the heavy net again. 
That is why I saw the thing when it crossed between us. Against your space all, it was another shade of gray, an outline. So I put out mine and waited for it to show against that. It was our only chance, Cliff. It was curious at first, I think, and it knew we couldn't see it, which was why it waited to attack. But when Bat's actions gave it away, it moved. So I waited to see that flickering against the space all, and then I let him have it. It's really very simple. Cliff laughed a bit shakily. But what was this gray thing? I don't get it. I think it was what made the Empress a derelict. Something out of space, maybe, or from another world somewhere. She waved her hands. It's invisible because it's a color beyond our range of sight. It must have stayed in here all these years. And it kills. It must. When its curiosity is satisfied. Swiftly, she described the scene. The scene in the cabin and the strange behavior of the gem pile which had betrayed the creature. Cliff did not return his blaster to its holder. Any more of them aboard, do you think? He didn't look pleased at the prospect. Stina turned to Bat. He was paying particular attention to the space between two front toes in the process of a complete bath. I don't think so, but Bat will tell us if there are. He can see them clearly, I believe. But there weren't any more, and two weeks later, Cliff, Stina, and Bat brought the Empress into the lunar quarantine station. And that is the end of Stina's story, because, as we have been told, happy marriages need no chronicles. Stina had found someone who knew of her gray world and did not find it too hard to share with her, someone besides Bat. It turned out to be a real love match. The last time I saw her, she was wrapped in a flame-red cloak from the looms of Rajel and wore a fortune in Jovian rubies blazing on her wrists. Cliff was flipping a three-figured credit bill to a waiter and Bat had a row of Vernal Juice glasses set up before him. Just a little family party out on the town. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. The music we have been listening to today was from 1956. Today, in the background of By a Hair by Andre Norton, we heard 27 minutes, 10.554 seconds for a percussionist composed by John Cage and performed by the Amadadina Percussion Group. Behind All Cats Are Gray was a piano concerto composed by Roger Sessions, performed by 
the Munich Philharmonic Orchestra and conducted by James Levine. Before, after, and in between our stories, we've been listening to excerpts from Carl Stockhausen's Gesang de Junglin, or Song of the Youths. It was made in 1955 to 1956 at a studio in Cologne with vocal parts supplied by 12-year-old Joseph Proctisk. For this recording, it was reduced from the original five-track version to a two-track stereophonic synchronization for radio. Andre Norton was before her time thinking about Cat's Vision in 1953. Uh, Cat's Vision was heavily studied by David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel in 1958. They inserted microelectrodes into a cat's eye and forced it to view a variety of images which helped them decipher how the brain can develop complex visual images from simple visual stimuli and was instrumental in the theory of hierarchical vision processing. So a lot of times if you look at like the way uh, these convolutional neural networks are programmed and then you look at the like data that they got from this 1958 study, the way that we're training computers using convolutional neural networks to see is the same way that they found cat's vision to work in 1953. On the other end, when we're talking about cat's seeing gray uh, humans and cats both are trichromatic as in they have three different cones but cats vision uh, has a lot less in the way of red cones and is viewed as more red green colorblind similar to humans i'm not sure if this would actually help the cat see this gray monster or our main character but it was a theory Thanks for listening to Books and Blondes with Ray Guns. I'll be signing off. Mm-hmm. Nah. Mm-hmm.